0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network.
1: Today on
0: Government Matters.
1: Ukrainians are celebrating after taking back some parts of the country. Russia is now forced to respond to the massive counteroffensive and nearly every branch of the u.s military is struggling to meet its recruitment goals the changes leaders can make to address the shortfall then millions of federal dollars from the american rescue plan went to retrain military veterans but very few landed jobs government matters starts right
0: now from washington dc and around the world this is government matters with mimi
1: This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gurgis. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says his troops have recaptured more than 2,000 square miles of territory from Russian control, possibly indicating a turning point in the months-long war. Mark Montgomery is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Mark, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, how significant is this Ukrainian counteroffensive, and and is it a turning point in what some had called a standstill?
2: So, it is significant. It, it certainly uh, doesn't mean it's the the end of the conflict, and I wouldn't assume that there isn't going to be significant Russian response uh, over the over the next few weeks and months. But you know, what, what they've achieved uh, is a is a real. Um, is a is a uh is a um positive sign about the effectiveness uh and the uh comprehensive planning that the ukrainian military can do when given time and resources such as they've gotten from the united states and nato
1: well the quick success clearly came as a surprise to russian troops who retreated very quickly um they seem to not have very good intel and and they continually underestimate ukraine's capabilities
2: they do. Um, they underestimated them in on February 24th, and uh, they continue to do so. Um, I think the real surprise here is the lack of response from President Putin. And What I mean by that is he, he's had the same minister of defense and the same chairman of the Gen- uh, chief of the general staff uh, for you know, more than a decade. These two individuals were responsible for the poor condition of the Russian army in February, their inability to conduct large-scale maneuver warfare, and they were are responsible for their inability to prevent this offensive now yet Putin has not fired either either of those senior officials
1: so what do you think Putin is likely to do I mean I know it's hard to get into his head
2: you know obviously he has some pretty significant um you know catastrophic weapons he could use nuclear weapons chemical weapons but I think it's more likely he's going to use targeted cruise missile attacks on civilian infrastructure and i know it appears he's been doing that already but really what's happened in the past is they fired 3500 or so cruise and ballistic missiles 70% of which have hit their targets the other 30% have created civilian you know collateral damage i think now it's the 70% of them are going to be you know that 70% is going to be hitting critical infrastructure hospitals um electrical power grids water distribution systems his goal here is effectively uh, terrorism, right? You know, trying to uh, cow the, the uh, Ukrainians in, in, into ceasing their offensive. That which would tell me I think he's going to do that, and yet I think it will have no impact. The Ukrainians have sh- shown such resilience as a, as a country and their president as a leader that I don't think this will have an impact, but I do think it's the most likely Russian next step.
1: American defense officials say that the U.S. will continue to support Ukraine. What role should the U.S. be playing right now?
2: Well, first of all, the Biden administration has done a terrific job. The the packages of arms have been, uh, you know, per, have been the right arms delivered at the right pace. The U.S. European Command's uh, coordination of logistics has been fantastic. But really, the weapons that have mattered have been the artillery weapons, both the, the uh the um, uh, M177 uh, artillery with the uh, 155 millimeter rounds, but also the HIMARS uh, uh, systems with their uh, Gimlers or guided missile launcher rocket system. Those two elements together, both a, a short range and a medium range artillery, have been uh, consequential in allowing them to first blunt the Russian offensive and now uh, lead a counteroffensive.
1: Well, the uh, territory that was taken back was in the northeast. Uh, what what is Ukraine likely to face in the southern part of the country?
2: Look, this is the, the, that's a great point. Um, the it's the southern campaign that I think is most important. They really do eventually need to take uh, take back Kherson, to take back uh, what was lost uh, coming right you know just uh, west of of Crimea. Um, they need to get themselves a better buffer. Uh, to odessa right now the only buffer is the town of nikolaev where they did a fantastic job blunting the russians three months ago but it really is a flat piece of plane that you can drive through very rapidly so they need more depth there so they need to push the russians all the way back to crimea i know it's it has to be a ukrainian objective to eventually take back crimea but realistically for this fall it's push the russians back into crimea proper so that they have some depth to their defense of the of the uh of their of their south in odessa
1: and mark do you think that these territorial gains will be permanent like will will ukrainian troops be able to hold on to control of those areas
2: well i'm sure russia thought their territorial gains you know in uh february and march were permanent but um obviously they weren't and so you know my my gut re- my gut belief is that this is still a uh a, a fairly um um, you know, flexible battlefield. And the, the Ukrainians may want to step back to more defensible positions in any case for the winter. So I don't think the lines we're at right now are the final lines. And, and I think it may be by Ukrainian choice or by Russian action.
1: Is there any indication that the Russian military has learned from its earlier mistakes in ex- executing the war, the problems they had with logistics, uh, the problems they had with intelligence?
2: I am surprised about what happened in in the uh, in the north and uh, east in the Donbass regions only because they had such shorter lines of communication than they had in February, March, April. That was what a lot of us thought, well, it turns out that they couldn't conduct maneuver warfare at distance at three, four hundred kilometers. But here they were with very short lines of communication, very tight command and control networks, and yet they have still been pushed around uh, fairly easily. So I think the short answer is no they haven't learned anything.
1: All right, Mark, we appreciate you coming on the program and discussing this with us. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Later on Government Matters, a pandemic program is facing some criticism from veterans involved. But first, military branches are having a hard time finding young people who want to join the service. We'll talk about what's working and where improvements can be made to attract recruits. Stay with us. The U.S. Army projects it'll fall short by nearly 40,000 recruits over the next two years. The Navy and Air Force are now offering historic incentives for new recruits. Katherine Kuzminski is a senior fellow and director of the Military Veterans and Society Program at the Center for New American Security. Kate, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, So the Navy is offering up to $65,000 for new recruits. The Air Force is offering up to $50,000. What are your thoughts on these monetary incentives?
3: I think monetary incentives has, have historically worked as a way to bring individuals on, but I think there's some really interesting non-monetary incentives that we're seeing the services offer. Uh, one program is the Army's Buddy Program, which allows individuals to join uh, basic training with up to four friends and be guaranteed to go in the same MOS. We also see people um, getting more of their choices for their military occupational specialty as opposed to the needs of the service in order to fill those positions. Has that been working? Uh, the results are slowly coming in, but I think that it's tapping into what the youth of today are really looking for outside of those monetary incentives.
1: And the buddy program that you're talking about, is that the, the pre-basic training program or that's something different?
3: That's a separate program. So that's a way to tap into the individuals who have a propensity to serve, but who might otherwise not meet the standards. So the Army has a pre-basic training course, um, one for physical fitness standards and the other for academic standards, to get those individuals up to speed uh, before they go to basic training. Uh, What's really interesting about that is it doesn't lower the standard, it helps those interested individuals meet the standard that's in place.
1: That's what I was going to ask you because obviously we need people to be fit and to, to meet academic standards. So how do they go about helping people meet those standards?
3: For the physical fitness training, um, they are evaluated at regular intervals during the program. Um, there's a focus on diet and, and exercise to get them up to that standard. The academic preparatory course is a bit more focused on the academic side of things, and, and individuals are evaluated as they go through. And once they meet the standard, they can then go off to basic training.
1: And academically, it's it's just a high school diploma.
3: That's correct, or GED, uh, high school diploma or uh, equivalent. And then the, the ASVAB score, so the course helps them uh, raise their score uh, to be eligible for service. So do you think other branches should be following the Army's lead? Do you think this is a good program? Certainly. So the services are all looking for individuals who have an interest in serving and who can meet the standard. While the services are working on increasing interest in serving, uh, they have a captive audience in those who are already interested but just need a little help to get there.
1: Well. R- Regarding eligibility requirements, only about a quarter of Americans actually meet the standards to to join a military service. Do you think those standards should be reduced or changed in any way?
3: So those standards exist for a reason. Uh, we want a military that that reflects um, the the highest that that our country has to offer. But there are some standards that perhaps could be relooked at. So um, one of the areas the services all offer waivers for different medical conditions. Um, so those. Uh, conditions where the services are already handing out waivers at a high level might be revisited as something that doesn't necessarily need to go through that scrutiny.
1: Like what? What kind
3: of um, waivers? So uh, ADHD is one uh, that waivers are frequently offered for. Um, conditions like eczema can sometimes be disqualifying but don't necessarily cut back on an individual's ability to serve.
1: So retention is also a big part about the numbers and, and keeping the, the readiness of of the force.
3: What are the services doing on that front? So uh, there's, each of the services is managing their workforce a bit differently, but we've seen a transition from uh, the industrial era model of managing a service member's career to more of a talent management model. So taking into consideration more of the preferences that individuals have based on location, um, based on roles and positions that they'd like to fill and matching that with their experiences and knowledge.
1: You know, it's said that data is the new ammunition, and it's a very digital force, right? Because warfare is changing.
3: What do the services need to do to attract those types of recruits? Yeah, those uh, recruits certainly have other options in other fields. Uh, we think of Silicon Valley as being a real competitor to the more technical fields. Um, but what the services can really capitalize on is the mission that they offer to individuals. Um, there's, there's nothing like pro- serving your country and, and protecting the country's needs, uh, even if the services can't offer the types of compensation that uh, the, the private sector could.
1: And how did the the military get into this situation in the first place, that this has become such a big problem?
3: I think um, year over year, the services are, uh, with the exception of the Marines, always trying to meet their recruiting goals towards the end of the fiscal year, which we're in right now. Um, I think two years of COVID, or two and a half years of COVID and recruiters not being in high schools and on college campuses has really hindered the ability to tap into the target demographic that we typically go after. Um, And also we have to remember that um, nearly a million and a half uh, High school seniors also uh, forewent college opportunities as they're trying to figure out life uh, after doing school remotely for the last couple of years. So I think that we'll see some uh, systematic changes over the next couple of years now that we have high schoolers back in school. And
1: just briefly, what's the, what does it look like for a new recruit? What's the commitment level? How long do they need to stay in and what are the benefits?
3: So contracts vary um, depending on on what's offered. Typically, about three to four years for enlistees, about four to five years for those going into the officer corps. Um, but uh, certainly, the access to educational benefits, uh, to healthcare, which you know a lot of uh, young folks aren't necessarily thinking about when they're joining, but matters more and more over time, becomes a real retention incentive. Um, also, the the new retirement system that the old system required you to stay in 20 years to access. Um, and now looks more like a 401k that you get at a private employer
1: all right Kate well appreciate you coming and talking to yeah, us about this thank, thank you. you coming up on government matters a pandemic program created to help unemployed veterans ended up plagued with problems we'll be right back Under the Veteran Rapid Retraining Assistance Program, nearly $400 million was invested to pay for online education for vets. But problems have plagued the program, and only a small percentage of vets actually landed new jobs. Lisa Ryan is a reporter for The Washington Post and talked to several veterans in the program. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Mimi. So why was the program created, and how was it intended to
4: work? So this was really a... Uh, a great idea that uh, a bipartisan group of lawmakers in Congress in the House had uh, to help veterans who had lost their jobs in the pandemic. And it was, you know, vital because so many people were so worried about veterans and everyone else. And there were two big, big tranches of money uh, that uh, that went to both the federal government and just you know average Americans. One was the CARES Act in early 2020 under President Trump. The other was the American Rescue Plan under President Biden. And this idea for a retraining program for veterans had come much earlier, more in the Trump um, period, but it never really got into the. It got in. It did not get into the early uh, rescue bill. So it got into the American Rescue Plan, which was in 2021. And the idea was actually it was modeled around a program that VA had um, had done in the Great Recession, so about ten years earlier, where veterans would get money and to enroll in a year-long retraining program that was more uh, vocational, more you know about you know being a barber, uh, switching careers, something in the computer in the tech realm, uh, maybe coding, uh, maybe. Um, uh, an apprenticeship, you know, m- maybe something in the trades. Anyway, so that was the idea behind it.
1: So one of Next. the biggest problems of the program ran into was the quality of the education. What were some of the issues that you found out about?
4: That's right. So VA, I mean, the backdrop here is that VA has always struggled. Um, it offers wonderful, generous, you know, education benefits, and the GI Bill is obviously the most well-known forum for that. But it's really always struggled with these non for-profit i'm sorry for-profit schools who really take advantage of the fact that there's a lot of federal money in the veteran space and so a lot of the gi bill schools um, had had a lot of issues with deceptive practices you know telling veterans they were going to get um you know a certain kind of education and and jobs afterwards and not give providing it and in this case um there, there was an investigation that really kind of prompted us to do the story that Senator Durbin of Illinois um, had had triggered um, of a school based in Chicago called Future Tech Career Institute, and this was a a tech school where they promised veterans, okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get you jobs, and what they did was they enrolled just kind of inhaled more than 300 veterans in the course of about about 10 days and this made VA suspicious. But even before that happened, veterans were complaining to VA as well as to the state of Illinois, um, which ultimately did an investigation about how you know the classes were not where they were made out to be. Um, you know, there were too many students that, that they would let students in. You know as the classes were ongoing and then the teachers would would sort of just dial back everything to accommodate a new student there weren't enough um materials
1: and at and- least i wonder you know did you talk to the schools involved what what was their response yeah
4: we did we did and and just to say future tech was not the only school you know that this that these practices happened at there were um I think there were, we found something on the order of 90 altogether whose approvals from states were pulled, although not all were for deceptive practices. um, Others were for administrative failures, which clearly are in a different category. But Future Tech responded to us um, at length and basically called these one-offs, just called them anomalies, you know, and minimized the effect on veterans and said, you know, this really... Wasn't really a big deal, you know. This was just a fluke. Some of them, some of the issues, they actually blamed on VA. But I think um, the students, you know, from what they told us, uh, they really didn't get, you know, really a great, a great retraining, uh, and it was very hard for them to switch to other programs by this point.
1: And, and Lisa, Congress created the program to serve more than seventeen thousand veterans, but a lot fewer than that actually signed up. Why? Why was that?
4: Right, so so the program still has a couple more months. It's supposed to end in Dece- December fifteenth. So things could change. But basically, um, you know, we found that um, way less than half of that number um, have enrolled in the program. And I think it owes to a couple of things. We in our reporting, we discovered. You know, one is that VA did not really advertise this very well, and it's hard, admittedly. You know, there are a lot of veterans. They're far flung in the country. And but it's it was really mostly just out there on VA's website, and that's pretty hard if you're a veteran, you know, to to go through the website, which is complicated, you know, and all these federal websites just kind of get wrapped up in the bureaucracies. That's one thing, and I think, you know, a number of lawmakers were pretty upset about that. But I think the other real issue here, which is probably more of the salient problem, you know, is just that the unemployment rate for veterans when this um the law was passed that included this program and you know mandated it to start up so the unemployment rate by then in you know mid-2021 was quite low and veteran unemployment rate is always lower than that of non-veterans so I think right now it's something on the order of 2.5% and you know whereas Um, non-veteran rate is in the three somewhere around 3.5 percent
1: and Lisa is there any money left over from the program and and if so what happens to it now
4: sure so as of August which is our story ran in August so we checked in with VA right before the story ran and they acknowledged that only about half the money has been spent and so you know I think it's possible but unlikely that in the coming 3 months, you know, uh, a lot of this, you know, all of this money will be spent and what's going to have to happen is it'll have to go back to the treasury at that point, which is really not ideal. VA can't use it for other other purposes.
1: All right, Lisa, thanks so much for being on the program.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. Send us your comments on LinkedIn. You can follow us at Government Matters Media. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 1030 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.
0: Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems.
1: I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government?
5: What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that